All right, well, it's been, uh, it's been a really good week. And again, I just want to commend everyone for, man, the good turnouts that we've had every single night. And I know that you've been blessed. And again, waiting for the blessing tonight. So, Brother Schwenke, we sure have appreciated you, your ministry throughout the years. And uh, God has really used you this week. So come on up here and uh, preach the word. Thank preach you. Your God bless you. All right, thank you, preacher. Let me invite you to turn in your Bible tonight to the book of Revelation in chapter number two. The book of Revelation, chapter number two, and tonight I'd like to begin in verse number eight. Revelation two and verse number eight. And of course, I certainly like to say thank you so much to Corridor Baptist Church and especially Brother House. I sure appreciate your hospitality and graciousness and, and your generosity to my wife and to me. And and uh, we so much appreciate what the Lord is doing here. And I just want to encourage you tonight to join your pastor and say we're going to step out by faith and, and attempt great works for God. These are great days to be in the service of the King. And uh, I know the Lord has great, great plans in store for you folk. God bless you. Thank you for your faithfulness to Christ. And we regularly pray for your pastor and pray for you. And, and uh, we're thankful for what the Lord has started to do and confident that continue to do. Thank you for being so generous to us. You have your Bible tonight to the book of Revelation chapter number two. Uh, of course, most people, when they come to this last book in the Bible, they misquote the title. This is not the book of Revelations, but it is the book of Revelation. And that makes all the difference in the world. You know, people think this last book is in the Bible, so they have a little puzzle book that, that they can just kind of squeeze any prophecy that they might find in the USA today. However, this book is in the Bible not to reveal the end times. In Revelation 1.1, it says, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you come to this last book in the Bible to find some cool little event that, that nobody else has been able to twist out of scriptures, you get it all wrong. But if you come to this last book in the Bible to see Jesus, to know him and the power of his resurrection, then you understand why this last book is in the Bible. It is for the testimony of Jesus Christ and because of his love for the Bible that Pastor John has been taken from his church in the city of Ephesus. They put him on a boat and sail him out across the Mediterranean Sea, heading for a place called the island of Patmos, an island of criminals. You know, the Roman Empire loved their rocks. Everything they built was out of stone. And, and it was criminals on an island like Patmos that would quarry their rocks for the empire. And, and you know, when at 95 or so, give or take a few years, when a 90-plus-year-old preacher gets on a boat as a prisoner and, and they're sailing him out to an island of exile, I've got to believe that all that way, John must have thought, well, it's been a great run, but it's over now. You know, he must have been thinking what a time it was 60 years ago uh, when I walked with him and talked with him and fellowship with him. And, and now John has spent these six decades preaching his Savior. Every one of the other disciples had long since died. And, and Pastor John was the one that God just gave that long life to. And, and yet now he had to think it's all over. A wonderful run. It's just been exciting and thrilling. And, and yet when you're 90 plus years old and they're dropping you off on an island like Patmos, you have to believe that, well, the Lord must be done with me now. And as he stepped off that boat onto that island, I don't know what's going through his mind, but I, I suspect he never could have imagined what would happen next. Because on that rocky island, that's where God opened up the heavens and by the Spirit of God, he gave John the words and the book of the Revelation. It's an amazing moment in time. And, and even in Revelation chapter 1, we get the story of the Bible. It all started from the mouth of God. Of course it did. The Bible is every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. From the mouth of God to the word of God himself, the Lord Jesus. By an angel, Jesus delivers those words to Pastor John. Pastor John carefully writes them down. And, and then they will be sent to New Testament churches, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Those words are not sent to the American Bible Society. Those words are not sent to a Bible school or a seminary. Those words are being sent to the New Testament churches where they are carefully going to be copied and then they're going to be sent on to the next church. And we have a beautiful illustration in the last book of our Bible as to how God gave us all the books of the Bible. 
The Bible is the words of God. They went through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God, and God has used his New Testament church to preserve his words. What an amazing story it is. So here is Pastor John on that rocky island of Patmos. And now the heavens are opened and and why Pastor John is allowed to see what happens yet in the days of the future. But before that begins, Jesus has seven letters that he wants to send to the angels of seven churches. The first, of course, is in a place called Ephesus and then Smyrna. And from there, they will be carried on to five more New Testament churches. And these assemblies have a message. More accurately, the pastor, the angel of these assemblies, they have a message from our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if you're able physically tonight, I'd like to invite you to stand together with me as we go to Revelation 2 and verse number 8. And the second of these seven letters was unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty. But you know, what comes next is astounding. I I happen kind of not to like, you know, air quotes. I'm not a big fan of those. You know, some people, that's all they do. Well, uh, while I don't like air quotes, I guess I could handle an air parenthesis tonight. Would that be all right? Because the Bible says in verse number nine, I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but you talk about a parenthesis for the ages. Lord, the Lord looks at this little church and says, but thou art rich. It is the story of Jesus and his rich church. Father, help us now as we go to the mighty word of God. I pray if someone in this room has never been saved, that tonight in repentance and faith, they would call upon the name of the Lord. Then I pray for your people that the word of God would stir up the ground of our hearts. Would you revive us again? We ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you so much. Please be seated. In America, we are used to religions dominating certain parts of our country. For example, we all know that if you go to small cities or towns in the state of Utah, you'll find places that are completely controlled and dominated by Mormon religion. There's no sense running for office. You're not going to be able to start a business. You're never going to be a success, so to speak, unless you are part of the Mormon religion. And in places in Utah and Idaho, we understand that Mormonism just rules the roost. If you get to many smaller towns in the state of Texas, you will find much the same. It is controlled by the religion of the Southern Baptist Convention. If you get on the south side of Interstate 10 in the state of Louisiana, you will find a place that is ruled by the religion of Roman Catholicism. Why, in many smaller towns in Wisconsin and Minnesota, they are controlled by the Lutheran religion. And, and you know, we're used to that in America. As the way people settled and as time went on, certain pockets of America are controlled by certain religions. But you know, there are places in America where it is not a religion as we normally think of it that rules the roost. There are plenty of places in America, and maybe one of them is not too far from here, where people do not worship a religion as we are coming to think of it, but people worship the government as religion. In Bible times and in the days of the first century, it was called the imperial cult. And so we have it in America because in some places of Oregon and Washington and California and places like Massachusetts and Vermont and Maryland, you know, as you and I, we look to our God and say it is God that meets our needs. It is God who puts my food on the table. It is God that has put a roof over my head. It is God that takes care of my needs from day to day. There are people across our land that look to their government and say, it is the government that meets my needs. It is the government that provides my food. It is the government that gives me a house to live in. It is the government that cares for me. And as you and I bow our knee to our God and Father, as you and I worship our Savior, so there are people who pay homage. Their religion is the government. And it is nothing new. It is true in pockets of America, and it was true 2,000 years ago in a place like Smyrna. 
Now, when you take a visit to these seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3, well, the first is a visit to a place called Ephesus. And all you have to do is almost let your Bible fall open to the right chapters in, in the book of Acts, and you can almost hear the cries even now. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. I mean, that cry just rises out of the Bible. It is true there were shrines, small shrines, to other idols and to other gods, but everybody in the city of Ephesus knows this is a city that is worshipers of the goddess Diana. But you know, as they worship the idol of Diana or Artemis in the city of Ephesus, when you come to the city of Smyrna, these are people who bow their knee to the emperor of Rome. These are people that literally have put upon the throne of their city the Roman government. You know, as the first century began to play itself out, one by one, the Roman emperors, increasingly so, made themselves out to be gods. Tiberius, in the early part of the first century, he called himself a son of the gods. Caligula said, I am the reincarnation of Jupiter. Nero called himself the lord of the whole world. On his deathbed, Vespasian said, I suppose that I am becoming a god. But you know, all of these emperors were nothing compared to the final emperor of the first century, the most evil one of all. And he is the emperor that has John banished to the island of Patmos. The emperor's name was Domitian. He printed coins that did not just show him as a god. It showed him as the father of all gods. When you walked into the presence of Domitian, he insisted that you call him my Lord and my God. Throughout the Roman Empire, why prayers were given to Domitian and vows were given to Domitian. And once a year, there was a ceremony. Once a year, everyone was required in a place like Smyrna to show up when the incense was burning. Every citizen of Smyrna of the Roman Empire was required to take a copper spoon of incense and throw it into the air and as they throw the incense into the air, they have to say the words, Caesar is Lord. Do you know, they didn't even have to believe those words. That didn't matter. They, they didn't care if you believed it or not. The only thing that mattered is that you said those words, that you went through the motions of this activity so that all of your neighbors and all of your co-workers would watch you come to this incense, throw it in the air, and nobody could know your heart anyway. So as long as you throw the incense and you say the words, Caesar is Lord, you were good to go. Your business would be a success. The government wouldn't care. Nobody would harass you. Nobody would give you a hard time. All you had to do was throw the incense once a year and say, Caesar is Lord. And in the city of Smyrna, there was this tiny, and I mean tiny, little assembly of baptized believers, and they couldn't do it. They just couldn't do it. No matter the cost, no matter the price, they just couldn't do it. And the reason they couldn't do it is because, of course, Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. And so this little handful of believers, these tiny little assembly of baptized saints, they couldn't do it. And the pressure of the Roman Empire comes thundering down upon them. Why, you would think that the mighty powers that be in an empire like Rome, why would they care about a small, tiny little handful of believers? Why would they care about this little assembly in Smyrna? Why, you would think they wouldn't care. You would think they go on their merry way. But you know, the rules are the rules. And every citizen in Smyrna is required to throw the incense. Everyone is required to mouth the word, Caesar is Lord. And this tiny little church wouldn't do it. You know, I wonder if they had, in their day, done whatever they had to do to dial 1-800-Christian-Lawyer. You think they might have? And I wonder if the 1-800-Christian-Lawyer wouldn't have said, now, wait a minute, if you don't go to the ceremony, you're going to be a bad testimony. And if you don't throw the incense, you know the people in your city are never going to listen to you when you try to witness to them. If you don't say Caesar is Lord, you're going to be a bad... Do you think that, that sounds pretty strange? It really does. And in my wildest imagination, no matter what I ate for dinner last night, I couldn't have come up with that in the middle of the night. 
But unfortunately, two years ago, there were all kinds of Christians who were told to violate the clear commandments of the Bible because if they followed the Bible, the people in their town wouldn't like what they were doing. And it's not like they heard that from pagan people. It's not like they heard that on the evening news. It's not like they got that from the politicians and the powers that be in Washington. That was the kind of advice they were getting from 1-800-CHRISTIAN-LAWYER. You see, that's why when trouble comes, we're not supposed to dial up the lawyers. We're supposed to dial up the Bible. And when you dial up the Bible, you'll find, get the clear commandment. You don't call Caesar Lord because Jesus is Lord. You don't call out and praise some Roman Empire and deify him because thou shalt have no other gods before me. My friend, the nonsense of our world is magnified when we look at this tiny little assembly in this place called Smyrna. And all they had to do was show up at the ceremony. All they had to do was throw a little incense. They didn't even have to mean it. They just had to say the word Caesar is Lord and this tiny little group of people they couldn't do it and so now the Bible says they paid an enormous price would you notice in the word of God who their enemies are in verse number 10 the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried and you shall have tribulation 10 days now wait a minute it is the Roman government that arrested these Christians It is the Roman government that put these Christians on trial. It is the Roman government that sentenced these Christians to die. And it is the Roman government that ultimately executed them. But did you see what the Bible says in verse number 10? Though the Roman government is the one who tried them and killed them, the Bible says ultimately it was the devil who was doing this. And this becomes an incredibly difficult thing for some people in churches to grasp a hold of. And and I know it seems awfully strange Yet when you come to the Word of God, you begin to realize that Satan is in charge of the governments, the kingdoms of the world. You know, sometimes we give more authority to Satan than we should. We ascribe to him more power than he really has. I mean, somebody wakes up in the morning with a sore toe, you know, and, whoa, the devil's really giving me a hard time today. And and, and I got to tell you, that's probably not too accurate of a statement. Because, you know, sometimes we think the devil is everywhere, but he is not. I mean, as our Savior is everywhere, as our God is everywhere, as the Holy Spirit of God, and we use the word omnipresent, they're everywhere. Well, Satan is not. Satan can only be in one place at one time. And I know that you and I here in Hillsboro, I know we're really, really important people. But, you know, the devil may just have us few on the agenda. They're just a hair more important than us. You know, he may be worried about somebody in Washington or somebody in London or somebody in Tokyo or some nutcase in North Korea. But, you know, I suspect that as important as you and I are, we're really important. You know, there may be somebody else a little more important than us. It is true that Satan has his forces and he has a well-defined group of agents. But the truth is Satan is in one place and one time. And so for Satan, could I say it like this, to get the most bang for his buck, Satan is going to do his business where he can have the most effect. And that is the governments of the world. Do you remember that day when Jesus and Satan and the Bible are standing in a mountain? Why, Satan has already tried to tempt Jesus, saying, Turn the stone into bread. Man shall not live by bread alone. And he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and says, Cast yourself off. And then he does what he does to this day. He misquotes the Bible. He misquotes Psalm 89. Cast yourself from the pinnacle of the temple. And the Lord, of course, mocks Satan and he ridicules Satan and denies him. But then they are on the top of a mountain. And in the book of Luke, the Bible says that in a moment of time, Satan and Jesus go to the kingdoms of the world. In a moment of time, I mean, they literally visit the government centers of the world, the kingdoms of the world. And then on the top of that mountain, after Satan has showed Jesus the governments of the world, he says, these governments, and this is his words now, have been delivered unto me, and to whosoever I will, I give them. You know the stunning thing when he made that statement saying the governments of the world belong to me and I can give them to whomsoever I will. The stunning thing about that moment is that Jesus never corrected him. And that, my friend, explains the reason why you meet your congressman in Hillsboro or Beaverton, Oregon, and, and you know, it seemed to be a good old guy. Hey, he seems to be one of us. I mean, that guy just kind of almost be normal, you know? And all of a sudden, they get on an airplane, and they land in Washington, D.C., and they're an entirely different person. 
and they do things that you would never have imagined. They vote in ways that they never would have imagined. Why, all these people a few years ago, they believed that a marriage was between one man and one woman. I mean, 35 states voted on it, and even Oregon got it right. I got to tell you, folks, around the country, man after man after woman after woman, they said, we know what a family is. I mean, we don't even need the Bible to tell us. Common sense will tell you what it is. And then one day a politician rises up and says, you know, I don't care right and wrong. I don't care about world history. I don't care about common sense. With the stroke of the pen, I think I can rewrite what a family is. And, you know, most of us are saying, well, what are you doing? Why do these people do this? And it is because you and I do not appreciate and you and I cannot understand the enormous control that Satan has in a place like Washington, D.C., his great power in the government houses and in the kingdoms of the world. And that is why a handful of people can so oppose the will of common sense and the will of people to do things that are demonic, to do things that are satanic, Because Satan is in control of governments, and he gives them to whomsoever he will. And that's why when you come to verse number 10, though it is the Roman Empire that is persecuting these Christians, arresting these Christians, putting them on trial, the Bible puts it where it belongs. Ultimately, it is not the Roman Empire, although it is. But the end of the game tells us that the devil is the one that is bringing such persecution to this tiny little assembly. And the pressure's enormous. I mean, they're being cast into prison. They're being facing tribulation. They are being persecuted to no end. And all they have to do is show up at the ceremony. All they have to do is throw a little incense into the air. And you know, you don't even have to mean it. You just got to say it. Why don't you just get along? All you have to do is say Caesar is Lord. And they wouldn't do it because Jesus is their Lord. And so the entire weight of the Roman Empire, infused by Satan himself, is coming down on this tiny little assembly in Smyrna. But you know, they had a second enemy. Go back, if you would, to verse number 9. And in the middle of the verse, Jesus said, I know the blasphemy of of them which say they are Jews and are not. Those who in the New Testament say they are Jews and are not, that is a a synonym for unsaved Jewish people, for those who have refused to recognize Jesus as their Messiah. The real seed of Abraham, the real spiritual sons of Abraham are those people, Jew or Gentile, who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who confess him as the risen son of God, who know that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one of God. And yet the Jews who say they are Jews and are not, they're stuck in the laws of the Old Testament. They are stuck in human practices. They have exalted the religious establishment above the word of God. Their own human thinking is more important than the Bible. In the eyes of Jesus Christ, the real Jews have bowed their knee to the Messiah. These religious Jews say they are Jews and they are not. But look what it says. They are the synagogue of Satan. Now, it's not just the Roman Empire and the government that is attacking this little church. It is also the organized religion of Smyrna. And the great ministers that have these grand synagogues who are dressed in these opulent robes and they walk down the streets and and their parishioners, if they use that term, they look up and say, Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi. And why they're blessing people and honoring people and they're really playing it to the hilt. They are loaded with money. They are loaded with power. And on one side, the full weight of the Roman Empire is coming down on this little assembly And on the other side, the full weight of organized religion is trying to stamp them out. Wouldn't you think they wouldn't care? I mean, wouldn't you think that these great religious leaders with their massive synagogues and their great budgets and their ornate buildings with all their glory and all their power, how would you think they'd look at this tiny little assembly of people who are so poor they couldn't even have their own building, uh, of people that are just some little courtyard of somebody's little house, and there they are quietly singing praises. Uh, don't you think that the mighty religions of the great synagogues in Smyrna, don't you think that the great emperors and the mighty Roman Empire would say who in the world cares about some tiny little assembly in some little backward street in Smyrna and you know who cared Satan cared 
Satan controlled the Roman Empire like he controls governments today. And Satan controls, as stunning as this might be, organized religion. That's why the Bible says that ultimately these religious people are the synagogue of Satan. You know, most people got this idea that certainly didn't come from the Bible, that Satan's running around in a red outfit with horns and a tail, and, and he's there in hell, you know, and as everybody, anybody comes to hell, Satan is there just laughing at him and making fun of him. Ladies and gentlemen, Satan is not in hell. Satan has never been to hell, and Satan is not going to hell anytime soon. And if you imagine Satan and his demons to be these imps or to be these creatures that are frightful and fearful, then you have swallowed the Hollywood line, you have swallowed the false religion line, and you're not reading your Bible enough. Because Satan is not transformed into some frightful creature. The Bible says he appears as a minister, an angel of light. And his ministers is the ministers of righteousness. Turn off the movies, shut down the internet, and if you really want to get a look at Satan's crowd, well, get your remote control before you come to this assembly on Sunday morning and go through the channels and look at the pretty boy ministers with their toothy smiles that are preaching a false gospel, and you will see with your own eyes Satan's crowd. Satan is as an angel of light. His ministers as the ministers of righteousness. Why, people have swallowed the lie of Satan himself. And this tiny little assembly's got the Roman Empire coming after him. And if that weren't enough, organized religion can't stand them. What a statement. A few years ago, two years ago, I was in the country of Jordan and and, and I just pulled in, landed there and just rented a car. And, and I mentioned the other day, there's more Bible sites in Jordan than any other country save Israel. And on Sunday, to the best of my ability, and I mean, I worked at this, to the best that I could discover, there is one independent Baptist church in the entire country of Jordan. And it's in the middle of downtown Amman, Jordan. In a place like Jordan, a, a Muslim country, you, you do not have a Sunday morning service. Sunday's a work day. It's our version of Monday. The brethren, the New Testament assembly meets on Sunday night. Well, that's Sunday night. All right, I'm said I'm I'm heading to church. And I gotta tell you, I had no idea where I was going. I am thankful that day that number one, the Lord knew where I was, and number two, Miss Google knew where I was too, I think. And and somehow, some way, I have no idea where I was, no idea how I got there. But Sunday night, about an hour and a half, two hours before the service, I pulled down some little alley in the middle of Amman, Jordan, and had no idea where I was. And somehow, some way, I hoped I was across the street from a building where a New Testament church met. I mean, obviously, in a place like that, they don't hang a sign on the wall that, and hey, Miss Google said this is the place to go to church. Who's going to argue with Miss Google? So I got in the car, parked across the street in that little back alley in the middle of Amman, Jordan, and just waited. It started getting darker, and I'm just waiting. It's supposed to start at 7 o'clock, and I'm just waiting. And all of a sudden, a few minutes before 7, I saw a man and a woman coming down the street, you know, and you know how the Lord just does that. You're in the mall somewhere, and, you know, the mall is just packed with people, and there's two believers, and you just know it, and they just know it. And these people are walking down the street, you know, and just something inside rolled down the window. Says, excuse me. I said, but you know, you folks look like Baptist people. And sure enough, I followed him into a little building. We marched up some stairs and from the outside, it just looked like one of a millions of apartments in Amman, Jordan. But you know, in that little place, in that little assembly, in that room that night, I mean, it was one of the greatest services I've ever been in. And I've got to tell you the truth, I didn't understand a word they said. You would think in the middle of Amman, Jordan, that no one would care. And you would think in the middle of a tiny, a, a, a tiny assembly meeting in the massive, huge city of Smyrna. Today it's called Izmir. Millions of people. If Izmir were in America, it'd be the fourth largest city in America. Hey, you think people say, who cares? You think the Roman Empire would say, who cares? You think the religious establishment with all their wealth would say, who cares? But the Bible tells us who cared. Satan cared. And this little assembly could not stand. You know, one of the greatest experiences to go to a place like Shanghai, China, 
And I remember preaching one Sunday morning. There's thousands, hundreds of, who knows how many, these huge apartment buildings, a hundred stories high. They're all over. Shanghai, like every Chinese city, is, is wall-to-wall people. And, 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 you know, I know we're supposed to gather, we're supposed to stand, and we're supposed to sing out. The greatest song service I've ever been in in a New Testament church, nobody was singing out. Everybody was singing down. And, you know, those people in those little, little, little house churches in China, they got the walls, I mean, soundproofing all over the walls. The windows are blacked out. And those people come one by one, two by two, two by three. And, and they come in through that little door. You think you're going into an apartment, but you're going into an assembly of baptized believers. And sitting in that place and those services and preaching that day, uh, I got to tell you, what an opportunity, what a joy, what a thing to behold. And you know, you would think, who cares? You would think some tiny little house church in Shanghai, China, where there's untold millions of people. I mean, this little assembly in the middle of a Muslim country like Jordan with all the other vast, pro- I mean, the multitudes of people in mosques. And you would think the government, you would think religion would say, who cares? But their master does care. And the Bible tells us that all the venom. All the passion of the Roman Empire, all the anger of the religious establishment is coming down against this tiny, tiny little assembly in Smyrna. I remember sitting across the table in Beijing, China, and in front of me was a fellow, I'll call him Brother Jimmy, and he was just a wonderful preacher doing a mighty work for God. And I said, Brother Jimmy, I said, tell me your testimony. How'd you get saved? And he said, well, I was in medical school studying to be a doctor. And he said, that's when the Lord saved me and the Lord called me to preach. And soon I turned my back on a medical career and I began to train in the word of God to start and to build New Testament churches. He called out the city where he went that A, I, I really don't want to tell you, and B, I really can't tell you because I can't pronounce it. But he's there anyhow. And, and he started a church and why this thing began to grow. And he said, we went to the place where we had 275 adults, not including the boys and girls. And I mean, it was just wonderful to see people getting saved regularly. And he said, that's when the trouble begins. Brother Jim, he said, four times I've been arrested and thrown in jail for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. You know, I held my breath and I thought he might ask me, Brother House, how many times I've been in jail for Jesus. And, and I was glad Brother Jimmy didn't go there. And he said, the last time it was a Sunday morning. And the authorities broke into the building and and the authorities came and they arrested me and they arrested my wife. They threw us both in jail for the word of God. I said, well, Brother Jimmy, what did you do? And he said, well, you know, he said, I opened up the Bible and started reading the word of God. Whoever would have thought of that, you know, what, what an answer. And he said, what I saw in the book of Acts is the Lord didn't want one big church. The Lord wanted assemblies to birth other assemblies. The Lord wanted that church in Jerusalem to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost part of the world, preaching the gospel, baptizing the converts into the body where they are taught the word of God so that churches start churches. So he said, we took our church and turned it into six churches around our city. And now over here and over there, there and there, there and there, they're just preaching the gospel, doing the same thing, and we're just seeing the Lord multiply again and again. He said, we have a Christian school, and he said, in our Christian school, and and you know, in a place like China, education is everything. So he said, I always sit down with any parent of a prospective child and said, if your child enrolls in our school, we are not accredited. When they graduate, they will never get a scholarship. They will never be able to go to the university. So if your child goes to this school, it is because you want them to hear the Bible, not Chinese propaganda. Yeah, I said, how many students are in the school? He said, well, we've got 50 students in our school right now. You know, as we were sitting there that day, I said, Jimmy, I said, tell me, where does the trouble come from? You know, because I'm imagining there's some Chinese guy in Beijing with a star in his hat, you know, and he's, he's looking for these Christians. And, and I told him, and he kind of laughed. He said, well, you know, sometimes uh, I guess you could say an overzealous government official gets worked up. But he said, usually we don't have a problem until we are reported. I said, well, who reports you? And, you know, I, I begin to understand why the windows are blacked out and the soundproofing is up on the wall. And he said, well, you know, it can be that somebody doesn't like hearing the singing on a Sunday morning. And that can be a problem. But most of the time, that's not it. Most of the time, our problems come from two places. He said, number one, and this was his words. He said, there are church jumpers. 
I think we call them church hoppers in America, you know. Somebody gets mad at a brother or a sister. They get mad at the preacher, and, and they're not content to walk out the door. they got to walk out the door and report them to the government. But he said the second and probably the most common way that we have been persecuted is that, well, he said many people are members of a religion in China called the Three Self Church. That, of course, is not a correct name. Three Self Religion would be the appropriate name. You are not a church unless you are a baptized member and you are saved by the blood of Christ. He said, well, they have this thing called Three Self Church, and and the people who are part of this religion, it is the only government communist-approved religion in China where the communist government calls out who the ministers will be. The government ministers, they, they approve of every message that is spoken. And he said, of course, in a place like that, you'll hear a, we love the Chinese government message, and you will hear a message that is positive thinking, but you'll never hear repent and be saved. And when people are truly born again, well, number one, they're so grateful the Lord has saved them. But number two, there's a part of them, and some of you are like this tonight. They can never get over the fact that they spent their life in religion that lied to them and deceived them. And if they died in their religion, they would be in hell forever and ever. So, of course, they get out of a dead religion that is built on works of righteousness, and they are baptized into a New Testament assembly. And my friend looked at me and said, the reason I've been to jail four times is because we had people that were a part once of the three self-religion who were saved, became baptized members of the church, and the ministers of the false religion called the government on us and reported us to the authorities. Nothing's changed. 2,000 years ago, the enemy was the government of the Roman Empire. 2,000 years ago, the enemy of this little assembly was organized religion. Nothing has changed. Call it China, call it Canada, call it the United States of America. But the greatest enemies of Corridor Baptist Church, if Corridor Baptist Church is doing what God called it to do, uh, the greatest enemies are going to be human government and organized religion. They always have. They forever will be the great enemies of the work of Christ. So on one side, here's organized religion looking at this little assembly. On the other side of the coin, here's the full weight and power of the Roman Empire. And all they have to do, all they have to do is show up once a year, throw a little incense, mouth some words with their tongue. They don't have to say it from their heart. All they have to do is say it in their throat. Caesar is Lord, and they're good to go. And this tiny little assembly couldn't do it. So would you notice the price that they pay? In verse number 9, Jesus said, I know thy works. And look at this word, and tribulation. You know, we look and hear the Savior say, I know thy works, plural. So what we would normally expect is the next thing to say, and I know thy tribulations, plural. But when you see that word tribulation, it is telling us that things have gotten so bad for this little assembly in Smyrna. It is not that once in a while they face troubles. It is not that once in a while there are tribulations. It has gotten so bad that tribulation is the every day, every minute, every second story of their life. In other words, there's never a time where they're not being persecuted for Jesus. They are not having tribulations. That was last year. By now, this little church in Smyrna, tribulation is the story of their life. And then, not only thy works in tribulation, but poverty. Poverty in the New Testament is the word that's beyond poor. Poverty is when it's as low as it can go. The Bible tells us that these tiny little church, this little assembly of baptized believer, they they are the poorest people in town. They are so poor, they don't know where the next meal is coming from. We are looking at people, and you know, sometimes we say, well, why in the New Testament do they never talk about buildings for the assemblies? This is why. Because when you were saved, if you were Jewish, they kicked you right out of the synagogue. The Bible tells us that. When you got kicked out of the synagogue, you lost your family, you lost your friends, you lost your job, you lost absolutely everything. Why, when somebody was a Gentile and they got saved, they were greatly persecuted for Christ. The reason these people have nothing is because for the sake of Jesus, they have lost everything. These are like our brothers and sisters tonight in places like Pakistan and Afghanistan 
And if you ever read stories and read books uh, of what it's like to be a believer in a place like that, it'll, it'll just grab your heart. And I mean, as you and I sit here in comfort tonight, our brothers and sisters in Pakistan and Afghanistan, they're not allowed to have jobs. Perhaps a Christian man could have a job cleaning the garbage off the street. But you know that verse in the Bible, give us this day our daily bread that you pray and I pray with our freezers full of food. Well, in a place like Pakistan, Christians, a man will get up in the morning and say, Lord, I don't need any food for tomorrow. But somehow by dinner time tonight, I need some food for my wife and my babies. Just give me today, just today, our daily bread. The enormous price is intense. Brothers and sisters, our brothers and sisters tonight are paying a great price because they love the Bible and they love Christ. Like the little church in Smyrna, Jesus said, I know your works and I know tribulation is the story of your life. And I know that you're not even poor, you're beyond poor, that you are living in poverty, that you're living in the dregs of the city, that you're living in squalor. This is the story of that little church in Smyrna. And you would think for such a poor little group of believers, you would think for such an insignificant little handful of people that the Roman Empire wouldn't care. It would think that the great religious establishment wouldn't care. But they had to care because Satan couldn't let this church stand. You talk about poverty, trouble, and to stop it, you know what they had to do? Throw a little incense to his Lord. That's all they had to do. All they had to do was just say it. All you had to do was just, yep, yep, yep. Caesar is more important than Jesus. And these people would rather die. So how do you know that? Well, I know that because the Bible tells us in verse number 8, under the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Jesus is saying, put your eyes on the eternal Christ. Put your eyes on Jesus, the eternal God, the first and the last. And then in verse number 10, he said, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation 10 days. 10 days. Now, this is kind of where I... I really love the book of Revelation. I mean, I love all the Bible, but I really like this, you know, because when you come to a verse like this, where Jesus prophesies, you're going to have tribulation 10 days. This is what brings the prophecy experts, the scholars. It brings them right out of the woodwork, you know. And these prophecy experts are going to explain to us what 10 days really means. Okay, so I'm studying the book of Revelation. I don't know, sitting in front of me on my computer, there's probably like 40 open sources, 30 to 40 open sources, you know, books, commentaries, geography books, all kinds of stuff, right? So I'm starting to read. What could 10 days possibly mean? And as I'm reading the scholars, I have come to the conclusion that there is only, 10 days could mean a lot of things. There is, however, one thing that 10 days cannot mean. It can't mean 10 days. It could be anything else, but it just can't be 10 days. And, and, you know, that's the kind of thing I find real fascinating. Because to me, when the Savior said, you shall have tribulation 10 days, I, I just have a theory. And I know this isn't, this isn't work with the modern scholars and the professors at the seminaries. But I just have this idea that the Lord, he's pretty good with numbers. Yeah, I just think he knows what 10 days actually means. And wow, it just sounds so scintillating. And it sounds so brilliant when, when someone can explain what 10 days really means. Well, what if 10 days were really 10 days? You know, if you're suffering, 10 days can seem like a long, long time. But it is still only 10 days. And so the Savior said to this little assembly in Smyrna, I'm the first and the last. Before there ever was a Roman emperor, I am. Before there ever was a Alexander the Great, I am. Before there ever was a Persian Empire, before there ever was a Babylonian Empire, before there ever was an Assyrian Empire, before the great pharaohs of Egypt did their thing. Jesus didn't say, I used to be or I was. He says, I am. I am. Jesus is always in the present tense. And when the Hitlers are gone and the Mao Zedongs are gone and the Xi's are gone and the Trudeaus are gone, when all of these wicked dictators and despots, the presidents, the prime ministers, when the kings 
kings and the rulers have risen and they have fallen and their rights are in the dust of the earth, Jesus is still going to be the I am. And all of a sudden, 10 days, when you're thinking about the eternal son of God, it may be hard, it may be brutal, but it's still only 10 days. You know, I don't know what the 10 days is. And the great prophecy teachers, they don't know what the 10 days is, are. And you don't know what they are either, even if you think you do. And the reason I know you don't know is because the Bible doesn't say. But you know what it could have been? And it's just a guess. But in Bible times, when the Roman government arrested these Christians and put them on trial and condemned them to die, sometimes they would hang them, sometimes they would kill them on the spot. But the common thing was to put them into what was called the gladiatorial games. They had a massive stadium, and like in Oregon, they go to a football game at the university. Well, in Bible times, in a place like Smyrna, they would get drunken. Well, same, some things don't change. And then they would go to the arena and jam-pack it so that right there in front of all these bloodthirsty people, two humans, or sometimes it was a human versus a, a beast, they would go out into the field, and right there, there was a fight right under the death. And with drunken spectators screaming and yelling, And looking at these people, they wanted a real fight. Well, you know, if you arrest some old guy in a church, he's probably not going to put much of a fight up. So what they would do is they would give him a weapon, and for 10 days they would teach him how to fight. Is that what that 10 days means? I have no idea. But what I do know, it was 10 days, and it wasn't a forever. You're going to have tribulation that is temporary. So did you see what Jesus said next? Be thou faithful unto death. And that's what this little church in Smyrna did. They were faithful unto death. It it may be that we're out in the middle of that field and it may be that we die. It may be that some beast destroys us and mauls us in front of thousands of drunken people. It may be that we don't live to see our grandchildren. It may be that our lives are taken. But no matter the cost, no matter the price, this little church, this little assembly of baptized believers said we're going to pay that price. And no matter what, we are not going to fall to the pressure. And we are not going to mouth the word Caesar is Lord. No, we are not going to compromise and get along with some pagan government just to appease them. We are not going to say what we don't believe. And this church would rather die than say Caesar is Lord. Be thou faithful unto them. And do you see what the Lord Jesus said about this little church? No wonder the Bible tells us that he looks at him and he says, I know thy works and tribulation, and poverty. And then he said, but thou art rich. They didn't even have a building of their own, but they were rich. They didn't have fancy stained glass windows. They didn't have a great choir. They didn't have a pipe organ playing some music. You know, they didn't have some stately artwork up on the wall, and the ministers weren't wearing beautiful robes. They had nothing, but Jesus said they're rich. The members of this church don't even know where their next meal's coming from. Every day they wake up thinking before this day has come because of Jesus and his name, I may be in jail. Every day they think 10 days from now I may be ushered out into the gladiatorial games and I may be literally dying for Jesus Christ. And you can hear their unsaved friends come along and say, all you got to do is to the ceremony. You can hear the Christian lawyers at 1-800-LAWYER. All you have to do is go to the ceremony. You can hear the guy on the job saying, all you got to do is go to the ceremony. You can hear their unsaved kids saying, all you got to do, mommy, is go to the ceremony. You can hear the unsaved parents saying, all you got to do is show up at the ceremony. They wouldn't do it. They would rather die. They would rather die call Caesar Lord. So a few years, and I mean a just a handful, a short time, after Jesus sends this letter to the pastor, the angel of the church of Smyrna, they get a new pastor. His name is Polycarp. And, and thankfully, years later, we still have much of the writings and the preaching of this man, Polycarp. And Polycarp is pastoring each little assembly, this tiny little church right here in Smyrna. Exact same one. And one day it's his turn. 
throw the incense, son. And the old preacher won't do it. Nope, he won't do it. They take Pastor Polycarp and they put him on trial. And, and you know, if you don't say the word Caesar is Lord, you obviously are a traitor. So they condemned him to die. For him, they were going to burn him at the stake. And on that day, they brought him to the place of execution as that little assembly watched. They were going to nail him to the stake. And, and the old preacher says, oh, save your nails. He says, I'm not going anywhere. And as they lit the fire, he never moved a muscle. But the last thing he did was say these words. He said, Lord, I give thee thanks that thou hast counted me worthy of this day and this hour that I should have a part in the number of thy martyrs in the cup of thy Christ to the resurrection of eternal life, both of soul and of body. And that day, Pastor Polycarp was burned at the stake. And all he had to do, all he had to do was go to the ceremony, throw a little incense into the air, Say, Caesar is Lord, and you're on your merry way. He couldn't do it. The old preacher said, I would rather die. And he did. And so here we are in America, Corridor Baptist Church. You know, the world will tell you what they think a successful church is. Religion will tell you what they think a great church is. But the Lord Jesus has very different definitions. No one in their right mind would ever look at this tiny little assembly in Smyrna and say, you're rich, like Jesus did. Because, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus has a very different definition of rich than we do. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. But thou art rich. Because they were faithful unto death. If Corridor Baptist Church will be a rich church in heaven, it will have nothing to do with this building or another property. Nothing to do with that. Nothing at all. It will have nothing to do with how the building looks. It will have nothing to do with how its people dress. It will have nothing to do with, with all the things that the world is impressed with. If Corridor Baptist Church will be a rich church in heaven, it will be because the people of this church are faithful to him unto death. That doesn't make big churches. That doesn't make famous churches. But that makes spiritually rich churches. And all they had to do was throw a little incense and say, Caesar is Lord. They would rather die. Father, I pray that tonight your mighty words would do a great, great work in this place. Lord, a church is not a building built with human hands. A church is not a roof, a ceiling. Your church is your assembly of baptized believers. And so, Lord, I pray for this New Testament church right here in this building tonight. Lord, I ask and I pray that you would stir hearts and stir the soul of this church. And, and Lord, would you help us understand that perilous times have come and, and righteous people will, not could, will suffer persecution. And so I'm asking and praying that in this place tonight you will find men and ladies, that you will find young people who are willing to count the cost and no matter the price, Love Jesus with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength. My Father, if someone's not saved, may tonight be the night they hear Jesus knocking on the door and they are born again. Before I finish praying, I wonder if someone tonight would say, Preacher, I'm the one who needs to be saved. I, I don't know from the Bible that Jesus is my Savior. Please pray for me. I'd love to pray for you. And then Pastor House would love to help you from God's Word tonight. Because the answer is never get religion. The answer is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there somebody here tonight, preacher, that's me. I'm the one who needs to be saved. Pray for me. Would you just lift your hand? And I'd love to pray for you. And we want to help you out of the Bible if we can tonight. Not to have religion, but to know the Savior. Is there somebody tonight? That's me. Pray for me. Pray for me. My Father, 
we give your invitation and I pray you would break the hearts of your people in this place tonight. We ask you to do a great work in the strong name of Jesus. Would you stand together with me prayerfully tonight and as we begin to